Welcome to the Maine Science Podcast. I'm Kate Dickerson. Today's episode is a conversation I had with Chuck Lubelzik and Rebecca Robish, who are part of the Vector Borne Disease Laboratory at Maine Health Institute of Research. A basic overview of their work is that Chuck is the one who goes out into the field to collect vector samples, usually tick and mosquito, and Rebecca does the analysis of those samples to glean a bunch of different information. They will both explain it much better than I can. It was really interesting to talk to both Chuck and Rebecca and hear how they work together to better understand the spread and impact of vector-borne diseases. Today's episode is brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank, who was the tardigrade sponsor of the recent Maine Discovery Museum Gala, our 90s party. The whole Discovery team is grateful for their support. So Chuck, welcome to the Maine Science Podcast. It is a delight to have you on. Right before we started recording here, I was saying how I was lucky enough to see you as part of a video presentation for Bioscience Association of Maine in the time of COVID as part of their middle school outreach. So I've been a secret admirer of yours for a while. So before we get into your work and what you're doing in Maine right now, I would love to hear how you got into science and where your interest came from. Thanks very much for having me. I think podcasts are absolutely a blast and I'm an addict of them in general. So it's really cool to be here. Science-wise, I guess probably the first thing I should preface is that growing up in, in suburban New Hampshire, I used to feed squirrels, my mother's very expensive chocolates as a child, to try to train them. And that started me off on a path towards wildlife science. And I actually had a big interest in rodents. So if you talk to a lot of people who go into wildlife, there are people who go in because they like to hunt or fish. So they may want to study deer or trout. There are people who are avid bird people who like songbirds and eagles and raptors and owls and hawks. And I really had a thing for rodents. And when I was in college, in undergraduate, in the wildlife program at UNH, it was right about the time that there was this big hantavirus outbreak going on in the Four Corners area of New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada. And there was all this discussion about rodents as an issue. And at about the same time, Lyme disease was ramping up in New England. And this is in the early 90s. And even though at the time I loathed and was deathly afraid of ticks, the idea of working on projects with rodents, be it squirrels, mice, chipmunks, you know, what have you, was really cool. And so this lab, the main medical center that was run by Dr. Rob Smith and Peter Rand, was doing some work on Monhegan Island in mid-coast Maine, where Monhegan ecologically was a little unique because it had only deer, rats, and muskrats for wild mammals on the island. There were domestic dogs and cats, But the lab at Maine Met at the time was studied because there were no mice on the island, but they had a lot of Lyme disease. And so there was a lot of interest in working with rats. And I just jumped on that. I mean, who wouldn't want a project where you could tent out on an island and study rats during the summer? It was an absolute blast. And then they started feeding me or paying me, and I never left like a stray cat. So I've I've been with the lab since the 90s, uh, late 90s, actually. So before we dive into your work with ticks that you said you were afraid of, I have to know how successful you were with training the squirrels and what your mom thought of you using her chocolates for that. She did offer to buy cheap peanut butter cups as a substitute. And that seemed to work just as well. I don't think they were very discriminant. They were suburban, urban squirrels. They didn't have high expectations, I think. Were you successful in getting them to do specific things or was it more like the training was they knew that you were their guy who was going to have the food so they would come by? They would come right up and grab it pretty comfortably out of my hands. And these were your your typical suburban gray squirrels. You know, at the time where I lived, actually, we didn't have a whole lot of wildlife around. 
oddly enough saying it's a little weird now to think about it, but chipmunks were like a rare thing to see. You know, the gray squirrels were, were pretty common. Everyone who has a bird feeder knows gray squirrels are pretty intelligent and they adapt really well. And they learned pretty quick that I wasn't going to swat them, that I had something that might be kind of tasty. I actually remember the whole scare. It really was scary with the virus in New Mexico. And then being in New England at that time, it did seem like we had the rise of an epidemic in some ways with Lyme. But if you were out of New England, you never heard of it. Where were you before that happened? Like before you thought, oh, I could do this. Like, were you just kind of figuring out your path? So I actually started out college initially. I had read, you know, as all early teenagers do, you read All the President's Men by Woodward and Bernstein. And I thought, wow, being a journalist would be really cool. And I did do radio, a radio broadcasting major for a couple of years. And then I kind of got in with a station that had a lot of egos and it kind of turned me off from it. And then I happened to read Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire, where I was astounded that someone could actually maybe get a job working outside. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. And so then I realized what I want to do. And then, uh, you know, why really the wildlife program at UNH seemed like a natural fit. I always had a thing for animals. And so I did some work as an undergraduate working on some deer-related research in the White Mountain National Forest, which was great because as a, you know, an avid backpacker, I was up in the whites a lot because you need to get a lot of summer experience work you know, I worked a little bit here and there for some, like, I guess you'd call them biological survey companies, private industry, doing environmental assessment work. And that could be anything from counting phytoplankton off the Seabrook nuclear reactor in, you know, coastal New Hampshire from water samples, things like that. And that was all fine. The lab stuff was okay. But really, when something came up where I was like, wow, I'm actually working on a project that was pretty relevant. And then also, someone's going to actually pay me to study or look at and handle mice. How cool is that? So for me, I kind of just glommed on, but like a tick, I just attached and started feeding. Nicely done. <laughs> All right. So tell us more explicitly what it is that you do, because your research, while deeply reliant on mammal population, actually does have a lot to do with ticks and disease transmission, I believe, and kind of what it is that you're studying and what you've learned since you've been in this field. It has been a tumultuous time, I think, to be in any tick-related disease study certainly in the last 10 years, but probably, you know, if you look at it longer, last 20 or 30, it is so different than it was 30 years ago. Yeah. And the lab at Maine Health that we have, the Vector-Borne Disease Lab, which is based in Scarborough, even though, you know, our lab is headed by a clinician, Robert Smith, you know, we have a lot of people that work there that have a background in environmental science, wildlife science, things like that. And we actually have two major arms, I would say. One is dealing with ticks and one is dealing with mosquitoes. And, you know, we kind of look at that as they both have a public health or veterinary health significance. There is a preference for thinking about ticks a little bit more seriously. You know, I think the visceral reaction is that ticks are a lot scarier in general. And I think that even though mosquitoes are out there on the landscape, they're kind of thought of as just part of the natural world, part of the order of things. But ticks, I think, really bother people. And obviously, we've seen a rise in vector-borne disease cases, certainly. Lyme disease, babesiosis, anaplasmosis, now a virus called Powassan virus is around and certainly causing cases in Maine. So there's certainly a pretty substantial public health burden to that. So our lab at Maine Health, even though we do a little bit of clinical work, you know, Rob Smith really heads up a lot of our clinical studies My background and my role is to really manage a lot of the field-related research that goes on. 
So we do a lot of work relating to sort of field conditions that may affect tick and mosquito populations, doing a lot of public health surveillance for both ticks and mosquitoes across northern New England. We have some projects going on in New Hampshire as well as Maine. We're working with health departments in New Hampshire as well as the Maine CDC in our state, and then doing a lot of work that's directly related to wildlife and how wildlife and wildlife abundance or different species may affect the presence of ticks, possibly affect the infection rates of some of these pathogens on the landscape. So you mentioned and went past it a little bit. We don't think of mosquitoes as being anything but just kind of a nuisance, but they do carry an awful lot of diseases. You know, I think about malaria, maybe not for humans here, but certainly humans around the world. Is that something that we're going to have to be more aware of, or are you also interested in that because of the impact that they have on other forms of life, like horses and things like that? So we do have a few diseases that we've seen in Maine, albeit the number of cases per year is a lot lower. You know, we go through years where we may not have much mosquito viral activity. A lot of that is related to the amount of precipitation we have. 2019, as an example, was a fairly rainy, wet year where we had a lot of rain in the spring and early summer. And regionally across New England and the upper Midwest of the United States, we had a lot of activity for a virus called Eastern Equine Encephalitis Virus. There were fatalities in New England reported from this. It's probably our most severe arthropod-borne virus in the U.S. Normally, though, we have a U.S. average of about 12 to 13 cases per year. And we at least doubled that in 2019 across the U.S. And so they're there. We certainly have West Nile virus is another disease that's on the landscape. And then finally, you know, in the last few years, we've had a new disease being detected. It's probably been around for a while, but it seems to be just kind of appearing more in the landscape called Jamestown Canyon virus, which resulted in about four cases, 2017 and 18 or so. We had about four cases reported from Maine, including one fatality. So I think it's the kind of thing where there's certainly an issue for both animals as well as humans, health-wise. But in general, because it's very periodic and very based on conditions like rainfall amounts, it's not consistent the way a lot of the tick-borne disease issues are. You can generally count on tick-borne disease being pretty active in, in any given year. You know, certainly you'll see some animal health issues as well from that. Why do you think we're finding more cases of tick-borne diseases and the mosquito emergence of new diseases? Yeah, it's different for both. So ticks, we generally think of ticks and, and tick-borne disease having sort of almost three legs of a stool. On the one hand, I think climate change is one of those things that a lot of people like to point to and really look at and say, you know, that's causing this. But with ticks, we do see that the wildlife that is present on the landscape is going to be as important probably as issues related to climate change. And then also we have things like habitat that the ticks require. You know, the habitat of a tick, some species like the black-legged tick, which causes Lyme disease, is very habitat specific. You know, it's not found universally across the landscape. And so having the correct habitat in place is another key leg of the stool in order for tick-borne disease to really ramp up. And so when those all come together, you have the right wildlife hosts, you have the right climatic conditions, and then you have the right habitat, you know, certainly ticks will thrive. And I think the mosquito issues are popping up more because, you know, we're getting these years, and again, it's not every year, but we certainly do have years where we get a lot of rain. And those years, we tend to have almost a pulse of mosquito viral activity in those years. 
and it's pretty widespread. You know, I think one of the things that saved us more than anything else in like 2019 is that we do generally have a shorter mosquito season than people south of us. You know, folks in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New Jersey, their mosquito season may go into October, possibly early November, which allows the virus a lot longer time to ramp up and affect people and livestock. Here, we cross our fingers that we get our hard frost around mid-September, and that generally be the shutdown of the mosquito season for us. And I think in a lot of years, that's actually saved us from having more activity going into late September, October, you know, when things could be a bit more severe. Would you mind walking me through two parts of a day in your life? So I'm going to arbitrarily ask you to walk me through what it's like when you're looking at tick-borne or tick-related stuff and then mosquito-related stuff. And I say that recognizing that I'm going to guess that rarely is it so cleanly divided. Right. Tick-borne disease day. We'll take probably one of my favorite activities, which is a wildlife survey with tick-borne disease. So we start on day one. We place traps out. We bait them usually late morning, early afternoon for an overnight period to get our wildlife hosts. We're generally up pretty early in the morning, you know, especially if we're working in the summertime. You want to avoid having live animals in areas of extreme heat and humidity. One of the primary things that we look at, or that I really take to heart, is that it's a real privilege for us to be able to work directly with wildlife, be it a mouse, be it a raccoon, be it a bobcat. It's a real privilege to be able to do that. So you want to make sure the animals are healthy and comfortable while you're working on them. So we get up very early, remove the animals, and the animal processing will take quite a few hours. But during that time, the animals, depending on the species, may be anesthetized. And so we have them sedated in the field where we can then take tick samples from those animals and take blood samples. Generally, they are given a numbered tag. So we know that if we capture them again, so recapture, then they're released. And those tick samples and blood samples that we then take from the animals will be brought into the lab and processed. Ticks in general are ID because we have about 14 different species of ticks that occur in Maine. Some are not public health significance. They're just a nuisance factor. But the ones that are medically or veterinary significance will be tested for tick-borne pathogens. And so they're identified as species and kind of separated out depending on the species that they have. We do occasionally do work with migratory songbirds. That means we have to be in the field prior to sunrise during the summertime. We're out uh, helping ornithologists ban birds. And so that will frequently start sometimes around 4.30 in the morning. And again, kind of the same process occurs. You know, we, we process a number of hours of, of handling birds, taking tick samples off, and then releasing them. And again, bringing the ticks into the lab for identification and possible testing. Mosquito work, really, there's a lot of driving involved with mosquito work. You know, we have a variety of sites that we will hit during the course of the day. But again, getting up fairly early in the morning to go out and collect mosquitoes, we have various traps that we place to collect mosquitoes of different species. Some have different habitats and different habits. So certain certain traps will collect a certain cadre of mosquitoes, while other traps may be more beneficial for collecting other ones. If we're looking for eastern equine encephalitis virus, we tend to go in areas that are less developed. That virus tends to ramp up in forested and wetland areas. So a lot of areas with red maple or Atlantic white cedar swamps will be targeted with our traps. And, you know, that collection process will usually start at about 6, 7 a.m. 
go to about 11 a.m. or so, because at that point, it's getting hot enough that if we don't collect the traps before that, the sun and the heat may actually kill the mosquitoes in the traps before we get to them. And we need them preserved to be able to test for virus. So again, we have several hours in the field early. Again, those mosquitoes are then brought into the lab where they are identified to species. And then certain ones are set aside for testing. We have about 47 to 50 species of mosquitoes that we know of in Maine. Of those, only about 10 to 12 are regularly tested for virus. The rest are just considered nuisance species that we collect and identify, but we don't bother testing because they're not really a vector of disease to either humans or livestock. So one quick question. The tick one is slightly more, not complicated, just a longer process because you have two different animals that you're dealing with. The ones who are carrying the tick, is it deer? Is it smaller rodents? Is it everything? Like, does it matter? Which, or does it's, it kind of depend on what you're looking for that day? Yeah, it actually depends on kind of the disease we're studying. So if we're doing a lot of work with Lyme disease, that really centers on a rodent and white-tailed deer cycle. And in the summertime, the black-legged ticks that transmit Lyme, they tend to really be found on small mammals, such as rodents. You know, we're looking at mice, chipmunks, voles, red squirrels, shrews you know, things that are generally smaller than a raccoon, we'll say. And then in the fall, the way the seasonal cycle for the black-legged tick works, in the fall, we have the adult stage. In the summertime, they're the juvenile life stage that are on rodents. In the fall, these animals tend to get on larger mammals, and primarily white-tailed deer has historically been the default mammal that we see these ticks on. And so in the fall, it's not uncommon for us to spend a lot of time working with activities that are related to hunting because we can then check deer that are coming into tagging stations. And in addition to collecting blood, we can check the deer coming in for tick samples. We've also extended this a little bit to working with moose, a little bit during the moose hunting seasons as well. They have a separate different tick on them that's causing a lot of health issues in the moose population. But we also will do some surveys of those animals as well, see what's on them. I am also really happy to have Rebecca with us. She's also working at Maine Health and another part of the Vector Tick investigative team. I know I'm really kind of stretching here. That sounds like something that you put on a superhero's business card. But before we make that one for you, I was hoping, Rebecca, you could tell us a little bit about how you got into science. And I've talked to all sorts of different people. Some knew when they were five. The vast majority did not. So what was it that sparked science for you and how did you get involved in the work that you're doing? Yeah, I knew at a young age, actually, I, I like most people who grew up in the 80s, I spent a lot of my time outdoors in the woods. We had a really large woods behind our house and then a creek in front of our house. And I knew then that I really wanted to work with the environment and do something related to environmental biology. But as I got older, maybe into my teenage years, I started to become fascinated with diseases. And when I went to college, I took an entomology class and the professor was a medical entomologist and he introduced me to this world of medical entomology where it sort of bridges that gap between the environment and how crucial it is to human health. And it it was a way for me to sort of marry the two worlds together, environmental biology and ecology with human disease. And it was just sort of a perfect fit. And I kind of went from there and got my master's degree in environmental studies, and then my PhD in medical entomology at Ohio State University. Wow. My son went to Michigan, so I'll try to ignore the Ohio State part because he will (laughs) otherwise not talk to me. (laughs) 
you said the medical entomology really, that class really helped you out. Do you get a chance to do outside work like Chuck? Or are you the one that is working with him? He does the field studies and you understand that world and like it, but you're doing the connections in the lab kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of time outdoors. I've, you know, I've traveled to Ethiopia and Kenya and done studies there. And even my dissertation work for my PhD, I spent most of my time crawling around in culverts and underground structures looking for mosquitoes that were overwintering. That was the time when West Nile virus first came to the United States. And I was studying both the environmental aspects of how this virus was able to come to the United States and then also remain here and expand. So now it's everywhere. And so I have a large part of my work. I have been outside working in the environment like Chuck does. But since I came to Maine Medical Center, I now do most of my work in the laboratory and do I run the molecular side. So Chuck does all the field collections, collects the ticks and the mosquitoes, brings them into the laboratory. And then I sort of direct the laboratory crew to testing the ticks and mosquitoes for the pathogens that they might carry. So I'm really glad that we're disabusing people that a PhD in molecular biology or entomology involves always being in the lab. And I hope they all have an image now of you in culverts and underground. I can. I love to be out in the field. So if I can go out and even if it's like to initiate a project or check on a project, how it's going. But I do spend most of the time in my lab nowadays. So I think it must be really helpful for the two of you to understand the other's angle. And I don't mean that badly. Like Rebecca, if you've done a bunch of field work, then you understand exactly what Chuck's going through. And Chuck, just from the way you were talking, it it seems to me as if you really understand lab work and the value of what you're trying to get the right samples to make that so it's understandable. Do you find it helpful that you both understand each other's area enough that it helps facilitate the work you're doing? Yeah, I would say absolutely. I think that we work really closely together. And I think that a lot of the projects that we initiate, that we, you know, we have many meetings either in the field or in the laboratory to sort of set them up and design them. And we work pretty closely together, I think is what I would say. And I think having a strong background in the field work is very helpful for me because some people, it is, the field work is very strenuous and hard. I mean, Chuck is definitely the expert. Like he knows his animals and ticks and mosquitoes way better than I could ever imagine. So it's nice to be able to understand it though. And I think he'll probably say the same, Chuck. Yeah, I think the one thing that, I guess I'm going to qualify this by saying, if you go back quite a while. We haven't done molecular work at the lab for the entire length. And so having the molecular component come in is nice and helpful. And it makes those of us in the field realize how clean we need to be. Rebecca has been in the field, so she knows how dirty things can get in the field. And and it's not uncommon for us to be out there slogging through mud and you have to have samples that are clean to bring in and they need to be in very good shape. You know, and I think that's something that a lot of field work doesn't lean itself to it can be really chaotic and dirty. And so I think that it really helps when we kind of bring this stuff together to bring the samples in and get them in a really good place to be able to be worked on. Well, I was going to say, Rebecca is extremely tolerant and patient of the mud we track in for the lab on a regular basis. Yeah, we've had some battles. Like, you can't have blood all or, you know, <laughs> deer hair all over the lab. We have to clean it up. And it's been sort of a fun, fun to yes. work through. So there's an image. I appreciate that. You're both at Maine Health. I'm curious how much you have students either as interns or summer jobs or maybe just postgraduate as part of your team. I mean, you both are deeply experienced in your work. How do you slowly bring in other people so that they get it too? We have a couple of different avenues for that. 
on the one hand, there's a group of students that come through, I would say, a competitive internship program that is sponsored by Maine Health. And those, we usually get one, possibly two of those a summer that come in and they stay for a small period of time, about three quarters of the summer are there doing an intensive research project. And Rebecca tends to manage them much more closely. And then on the flip side, we have sort of biological technicians that we hire, that are frequently that are students, undergraduates, in environmental science, wildlife, biology, undergraduate program. I think occasionally we've had a couple of master's students, but primarily they're undergrads. And in some cases, this is their first exposure to any kind of real science work. I personally think it's great. I usually tend to be the one managing the biological technician students that come in because a lot of them are based in the field. And I find it to be an incredibly rewarding part of the job. Occasionally, you have to be very patient because a lot of them maybe don't have any exposure to working intensively outside or the process of science. But like a lot of these things, if you have 30 students and you can hook two to three and you get them into the science field and they like it and you can see that they like it and they enjoy it and are enthusiastic, then that's a big win. And we've actually had a handful of students that have hung around and that have actually become staff at our lab subsequent to graduating, which is really cool. You both mentioned at different points in our conversation how, Chuck, you realized you could get paid to be outside. So I was, I was thinking you would give that opportunity to students. And Rebecca, you mentioned the, the value of taking a class. So that's kind of where that question came from. I know you're not at an academic institution, but I was thinking it's such a gateway to try to help students get out of the theoretical of what they're getting in class into a lab situation. And oftentimes, certainly in my case, the best thing I got out of being in a lab was learning I didn't want to be in it. And I think that that's really valuable too. A little bit to add on to what you just mentioned, Kate, was that Maine Health is one of the hospitals affiliated with Tufts Medical School in Massachusetts. And the head of our lab, Robert Smith, who's an ID doc, does work a lot with medical students. And we do have some come through that will occasionally do some kind of a research project with us. And that can be an experience in itself because a lot of these folks They've spent little to no time in the field. And for them, I think it's a little bit of an eye-opener to see actually what, I think the phrase we use is in medical school, you have a thing of kind of the lab, the bedside for medical work. And for us, we kind of take it from the backyard to the lab bench to the bedside. And so giving them the backyard experience, which is sort of really how a lot of this stuff generates. What I love about our internship program is that we are one of the few labs where the students can come in and actually get to see a project from finish to start, meaning from the environment where you're collecting ticks and mosquitoes, bringing them into the laboratory and testing them for pathogen and actually getting the results. And then also having the human health side of it as well. And the students really love that. They love to get all levels of that experience from being in the field to the lab work and even working with the public for education or the human health side. So it's just a great experience and it's been fun to watch them grow. And some of them actually do end up going on to have careers in the public health entomology field, which has been wonderful. And so it's been fun to watch them sort of start out, not really knowing what they're going to do with their future, but knowing that they have this interest in disease and human health. And then later on, years ahead, start getting their master's degree or their PhD in the field. So it's been a really neat experience. You know, one of the things that Rebecca just mentioned, which I think is really so important and I think doesn't get emphasized enough, is interacting with the public or communication. 
And even if I remember when I was an undergraduate, I did not have to take any public speaking or communication courses as a wildlife major. You know, I did as, as a radio broadcasting person. But one of the things we try to communicate to our summer, these may be students who, again, you know, it's their first time working in the sciences, but when they're out, especially independently in the field, and they bump into a member of the public, you know, they're representing our lab. And so to be able to effectively communicate what they're doing and why they're doing it, it's incredibly important because in a lot of ways, even if they don't realize it at the time, they are kind of ambassadors for the work we're doing. And so having them be able to communicate to some extent, you know, not, not a really a deep dive, but certainly just on the surface, be able to communicate why they're out there on the side of the road with the dipper in a culvert or a ditch collecting water samples with mosquito larvae is important if somebody stops on the side of the road and asks, you know, what they're doing. I think if we've learned anything in the last three years, it's that the connection between science and public health needs to be stronger and much better understood. And actually that leads me into my next question, which is we've talked at length for a podcast conversation about your lab work and the field work. Can you talk about how that does extend into public health and what the tagging and the tick work tells you and then the analysis, Rebecca, that you're doing in the lab? How does that translate into the public health next step that may be the only part of this that people ever hear about, right? They don't necessarily think about, oh, I'm out collecting ticks or I'm in the lab figuring out. What is the public health next step that you both are building or have the foundation that you're passing off to? Yeah, I can say that a lot of what we do is to look to see what percent the ticks or mosquitoes are carrying these pathogens. For example, I'll give you Powassan virus is what I've been working on for the past six years in the lab. Powassan virus is transmitted by the deer tick, and it's very rare in Maine, but the people who get it get very sick have encephalitis and often have to be hospitalized. And sometimes they even results in death. And one of the things that we've done, that's just an example of how it can translate, is that we have taken the past six years to go out and collect ticks from many areas of the state. Actually, we tried to cover most of the state, I think, when we did the study back in 2016, 2017, and tested to see what percent of the ticks were actually carrying Powassan and where they were carrying Powassan virus in Maine. And then we can then translate that to the public by getting a better idea of where the high-risk areas are and how we could then target helping the public health officials target where these people should go or where they should not go or how they could be more aware of where they'd be at the greatest risk for getting Powassan virus. Chuck, you might want to chime in on that as well. Yeah, I think I'll highlight one aspect of some work that we did quite a while ago now. But back in the late 90s, early 2000s, we were working on a project with the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife looking at how the density of deer in a given area may affect the abundance of ticks and how common ticks might be. And based on some work that we did, along with some work being done elsewhere in New England, in Connecticut and Massachusetts, you know, they actually came up with some ideas about what the threshold would be for ticks to really thrive. You know, so equating the number of deer per square mile or per square kilometer to how abundant the ticks might be. And that work, again, done by quite a few of us in New England, not just our lab, helps to inform hunting policy now in the state of Maine with regards to deer numbers. And so you look at the regulations for where deer hunting is occurring. You know, you can see that areas that may have a greater abundance of ticks and tick-borne disease there may be more hunting permits issued in those areas in an effort to sort of knock the number of deer down, with the idea being that the fewer deer you have, hopefully, eventually, the less tick population you may have. And conversely, 
the higher your deer population, the more ticks you potentially have in an area. And so in a lot of ways, to my mind, as someone that does hunt and fish, you have to look at this as hunting also as a public health. You know, there have been some projects where they have done deer reduction studies to reduce the number of ticks. And there's been varying success depending on the intensity of the hunt. But I think that helps to translate as well to a community, outdoors people that generally may not be as targeted by public messaging and by public health messaging, but that's at risk for both tick and mosquito-borne disease. And we do a lot of work with the Sportsman's Alliance of Maine, with Maine Department of Mineral Fisheries and Wildlife on trying to get messaging and outreach and education out to the hunting and fishing community as a consequence. So i totally intrigued by understanding that your work helps with hunting policy. That has never occurred to me. And a really good connection to something that I think most people don't recognize how valuable science is for different policy things, whether it ends up in the final policy. You know, it's not like for deer hunting, they're going to say, oh, because of the ticks, this is why we picked this. It's part of the decision-making process and really important, but not necessarily part of the final message. I wonder too, if the information that you're collecting, and Rebecca, you mentioned that you've tried to survey the whole state. Do you try to retest in those areas every, I don't know, five years so that you can see trend lines based on what the population might be doing for Powassan virus or other things to see how the trends might be impacting the state? Well, the state does testing yearly. Is that correct, Chuck? We have what we consider public health surveillance, which would be kind of generating long-term data sets on tick abundance, tick prevalence, and infection rates that are done at hopefully reliable survey sites year after year across the state. And then that's a little bit different from sort of more of our research projects, which kind of I can let Rebecca talk about because she's been doing a lot of research-based projects on Powassan virus. That's a little separate from like public health surveillance that we do. Yeah. And generally, now that we know that Powassan virus is here, for example, we know from surrounding states that generally the ticks carry it about one to five percent of ticks will have Powassan virus. And that's what we're seeing here as well. And we do retest in certain areas, for example, in wells at the National Estuarian Research Reserve, we test yearly for Powassan virus. And the percent of ticks that are infected doesn't really change from year to year that we've seen so far. So I think that once we sort of have established the infection rates, we don't have to necessarily test every year for it. But the state does do the public health surveillance. And the surveillance, you know, one of the things that we've noticed with that is that we certainly do see this almost inexorable march northward and eastward of these deer ticks, black-legged ticks coming into the state. As an example, we were able to find a couple of years ago that there was just the barest tip of deer ticks showing up in northern Somerset County along that Route 201 corridor heading out of Skowhegan towards Jackman. And what we've noticed is that incrementally, the number of ticks we find there is slowly increasing every year. And that tells us that these populations are just getting established. And as we move further north, we can kind of monitor and see when they finally arrive or actually establish themselves in new parts of the state. And that, to me, is kind of fascinating because there's a lot of mechanisms going on with why ticks are spreading. But just to be able to monitor them and to note when they arrive at a new location, I think is kind of a, a neat little you know, mini discovery that we have every year kind of going on. I really appreciate both of you explaining this in understandable detail. This is an area, obviously, you can probably tell from my questions that I have this over like, oh, I've heard of it, but I don't, <laughs> I don't know that much about it. And, you know, my background is in energy and environmental work. 
cleanup and pollution prevention, nothing to do with disease transmission, but I think it's really important. And I honestly feel like I could talk to you for hours, but I really do appreciate you explaining this step-by-step. I hope it makes sense for our listeners. I want to ask both of you before we finish, if there's any, well, you said you were deathly afraid of ticks check when you first started. I wonder if you still feel like that. And if there's anything in particular that you think we should be as a state really on the lookout for thinking about as we all go outside and enjoy the pleasures of what we have in this amazing place. Yeah, I want to say that I live in the mid-coast now in a fairly rural, exurban environment. And, you know, we're surrounded by woods. And I'm obviously, I love the outdoors. And I know I no longer fear ticks. I respect them. And there's probably a small part of me that maybe appreciates them. Maybe. I don't know. But really, I think the thing that I'm concerned about are new ticks that we have arriving. And we have a tick called the Lone Star Tick, which is slowly moving its way up the eastern seaboard, northward. And it now, I think the northern range extends to about Cape Cod, southern Massachusetts coastline. And 10 years ago, it was south of that in Rhode Island. So it seems to be moving. And this is a tick that's really a game changer because where they get established, they are hyperabundant and they tend to dominate a lot of field collections and they absolutely just cover the landscape. You know, they're a tick that has eyes, so they actually will turn and possibly try to hone in on a host possibly follow you, you know, where they get established, people say they can hear them rustling in the leaves on Long Island where they're established. So they're kind of like, you know, the nightmare scenario for ticks, but they will eventually be here, I think, at some point. And and that's really a climate change related issue because they're a southerly adapted tick. And I think that might mean that climate change is going to have some impact on this going forward. Yeah. And I think for me, if there's one thing that I would want the public to know, it's that it's so important to be able to go and enjoy nature and be outside hiking and biking and doing what you love. The the best thing that you can do as an individual is just to educate yourself on ticks and how they transmit disease and when they're out. I've heard from so many people during certain periods of the summer, for example, that, oh, the, the ticks aren't out right now, when actually they are but it just might be the nymphal stage, which is smaller and harder to see. And that just taking that time to educate yourself on when they are out and when the greatest risk of getting a tick that might be infected with disease. And again, doing those tick checks at night when you come home to make sure that you can prevent anything from you getting anything, excuse me. I think we can apply that also to mosquitoes, which I certainly have no love for. I have totally bought into the idea that there are some chemical applications to my body I am willing to adhere to if it's going to prevent the mosquitoes from getting me. So I realize that's a personal choice and people have different issues with that. But I grew up in upstate New York, so mosquitoes were all the time, right? Like I grew up in this kind of ex-urban area as well. And when we first moved here, it felt like we didn't have a whole lot of mosquitoes we had to worry about. And that is certainly not true anymore. So it feels to me like a lot of Mainers, if they're not hiking the 100-mile wilderness need to be reacquainted or learn the idea of not just ticks, but also mosquitoes are not necessarily as benign as we would like to think. So I will throw that out there and please disabuse me of that notion if I've got that wrong. I think that's correct. I think one thing that occurred to me just a couple of seconds ago was that you have a lot of students who are listening to this podcast, which hopefully you do. I think one thing to tell them is that really, you know, this is a field, vector-borne diseases, which really runs the gamut of disciplines. So if you're involved with climate, If you're involved with landscape planning, if you're involved with wildlife, medical entomology, molecular biology, veterinary studies, human health, we have a place for it. And this is really an area that if folks, you know, it's very multidisciplinary. And so, you know, I think a lot of students out there should really think about this kind of work. And and of course, by related fields as well, things like avian influenza, animal health issues. 
it's very multidisciplinary. And I think there's a lot of room for a lot of different disciplines of science in this field, you know, and I think the science as a whole benefits from that when we have different disciplines coming in. I will leave it at that. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm a big fan of interdisciplinary forced and encouraged collaboration. So I think one of the great mistaken ideas of science is that it's individuals working alone, having an aha moment. And you both are a perfect example of a whole team of people who work together on the same thing and maybe have a little piece of it that you're working on, but we need the whole team and we need the whole set of different scientists and science expertise working together to get answers. I appreciate both of your time. I know this was kind of an out of the blue conversation from the perspective that neither one of you had met me before. So I really do appreciate it. And I appreciate the work that you're doing in Maine. I think it's really fascinating. And I was not kidding. I really could talk to you for hours. So thanks a million. Thanks for listening to the Maine Science Podcast. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice. And please leave a rating and review. It will help more people find us and help spread the word about some of the remarkable people doing science in Maine. The Maine Science Podcast is recorded at Discovery Studios at the Maine Discovery Museum in Bangor, Maine. The Maine Science Podcast is executive produced and hosted by me, Kate Dickerson, and edited and produced by Scott Lozell. The Discover Maine theme was composed and performed by Nick Parker.